fourth year here of the uh, Philadelphia Franchise Association, and I think um, keeps growing. So I just want to thank everybody, and I think it's really in part, obviously, thanks again to the sponsors that make this happen, uh, allow us to put on such a great venue, and uh, and also for the franchise professionals that you know so willingly dedicate their time and, and expertise to to help us learn. And you know, as you know, these are. Uh, these meetings are inter interactive and open, so uh, although we have a big crowd, I hope we can continue the dialogue with you know, comments and, and, and questions. So Eric, uh, Executive VP of The Simple Greek, which is a Marcus Lemonis company. May many of you know probably The Profit. A lot of entrepreneurs love that show, so you know, they've, um, they're expanding rapidly. And uh, prior to The Simple Greek, Eric was a director with Quiznos, so he can tell some good war stories. There were certainly a few transfers in, the, in that business, and he's held various executive and sales and, and trading roles throughout his career. Oh, I think that's a little bit better. And, uh, and that's a little bit better, right? I mean, maybe I don't even need this. How's this? Um, next to Eric is Jenna Henderson. I guess I'll just project until they, until they fix that. Jenna, uh, Vice President of Brand Services at SaladWorks. Jenna's a, a friend and long, uh, colleague. Um, I've known her for many years. We used to work together at SaladWorks. She's sort of the, I like to say, the rock at SaladWorks through the last dozen years as, uh, as it's been through some transition. So um, she's certainly seen her first fair share of, um, of transfers as well. So um, we'll talk about that. Next to me is, uh, is Jim Provo. He's a Sal Salon Suites franchisee. Some of you may know that brand. Basically, it's a, um, it's a business designed to help stylists hairstylists to open up their own business without the expense of, so they'll get you know a few dozen um, salon suites, and then the stylists themselves will rent that. So, and he's also his day job is uh, SBA economic development specialist. I guess there's no conflict there because the salon suites are not eligible not for eligible. Uh, for for SBA. Um, but all of these are probably a lot less stressful uh, than the years he spent in the Navy on a nuclear submarine. So, if we have time, we can get into that, and that's not a joke. So. Um, so starting the topic, uh, our topic today is franchisee exit strategies. Um, this is always a pretty well-attended topic for, for franchisees and franchisors, and we want to talk about best practices for buying and selling a business. Um, obviously, there's a lot of best practices of selling a small business, um, and in franchising, there's a little bit of a unique twist to it. So um, I guess starting off here, I don't know who wants to kind of field this, but uh, you know, why do you think people sell and transition in the, in the first place? Jim, you want to start? You're right next to me here. What do you Sure. I think, uh, well, we try it with SBA and our resource partner score and SBDC, we try to train people when they start their business to have the exit strategy in mind, at least a rough exit strategy. So we all exit at some point either uh, for financial reasons or health reasons or family reasons. Uh, so there's a myriad of whys. Uh, or in some cases, it's not working or it's too much work. Uh, the business is successful, but just too much work for you to continue doing, so you decide to cash in and go back to the La Dolce Vita. That's right. <laughs> and you guys as franchisors, what would you say? Yeah, so I think that while franchising has a lot of systems and processes that help certain businesses, and obviously we're in the restaurant business, it's not for everybody. And so you can get into it with all the best intentions and then realize um, either quickly or over a longer period of time, which is more usually the case, that this isn't the right business. And then that'll typically cause that business to suffer and have the franchisee come and say, okay, I think I need an exit strategy now. Um, that's really the, the major reason we see. Um, besides that, it's personal issues. 
So I hate to say it, but like divorce is a really big reason why we see people end up selling their business. And they should be prepared for it. And how do you think people should prepare themselves, Eric? I think a lot of it goes back to initially setting the clear expectations of what you're, why are you buying it? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to you know, um, have a business for your kids? That's not always the best idea, but some think it is. Whether it's um, you, know, you, you don't want to work full time anymore and you want a part time business. I think it's setting clear expectations of when you're going into buying it and when you're going to sell it, what you want out of the business, what you want to get out of the business, what you want to get into the business for. And if those are clearly communicated and you have that vision and strategy for what you want to accomplish, I think the whole process becomes easier. And you touched there a little on, uh, on valuations, right? That's always the question. I think uh, I even had somebody ask that question uh, earlier. And obviously, there's, there's a lot of people who do valuations, a lot of brokers in this room who, who will do valuations. Um, how would you say people can start in terms of talking valuations? Jim, you and I were talking a little bit about that yesterday. Right. And uh, I, I would certainly defer, defer to the professional valuation people here in the, off, in the, in the room uh, because there are several different methods I was looking at. Uh, on the internet yesterday, and uh, there's uh, you know several dozen websites on uh, and people to help you value that. Uh, many uh, here or near here. Uh, the one I thought that was perhaps most interesting and easy to grasp was uh, multiple of discretionary earnings, where you know we typically think of one to three times discretionary earnings, and there would be some debate as what's included in that discretionary earnings number. I know there are some bankers here, and they may say there are certain things that some banks will add back in, depreciation, uh, benefits, salaries, uh, maybe other things, and other banks or evaluators, evaluators won't add back in. But then also determining the multiple. Uh, and I think that a class I recently attended said the average multiple today is about 2.83. Whatever number you come up with for discretionary earnings income or for operator benefits is another term you'll sometimes use if you add back in the benefits for the owner, uh, what's the right multiple. And uh, uh, these professional uh, evaluators, valuation people gave a, a class on how to determine that. You start, they start with 2.83 and then add to that or subtract from that depending on many factors. And different evaluators uh, may use different factors. But I just came up with a quick example here, a liquor store, a dentist's office, and a muscle and suite. And it, they might look at many different factors, but a few of those being earnings. Okay, liquor stores typically earn a lot. So maybe you take the 2.83 and add 0.25 or 0.3 or 0.5 to that. A dentist's office typically earns a lot, so you add to that. A muscle and suite earns a good income, 100 to 120,000 of uh, profit per store uh, a year, depending on the size of your, your store. But I just gave that an equal sign, because some other, a dentist office would make much more than that. A liquor store probably does. Then ease of operations. The liquor store probably gets a plus for that. A dentist office, what do you think? Probably get a minus for that, right? You've got to have bill people, accounting people, uh, assistants, hygienists. You've got to have lots of people. Uh, uh, my salon suite, it's a plus, very easy operations. Uh, employees, liquor stores, a plus. You need two or three people that can run a cash register and stock the shelves, right? Not, not too difficult. Dentist office, again, probably a minus because you need very highly skilled, trained people, especially the dentist himself or herself. You need another dentist to come in to buy that business. For a liquor store, anybody could do it. My salon suite, anyone with some business 
acumen could probably be successful with it. And you go down the list and add to it, uh, add or subtract to get what you what might be a good multiple. I've heard that dentist office sell for like one times earnings because it's a difficult. I don't know if someone can validate that, but that's a a difficult business. You need a lot of skill to do it. Whereas a, a liquor store might be more than four, more than four times. Sorry, thank you. Uh, just uh, because it's, it's, it's a profit machine, it's a cash cow without a lot of effort uh, to go into it. Same with uh, my salon suite, pretty much. So what you're really saying when you see it like a take three is kind of the average. Mm -hmm. You know, economically, a lot of franchise owners think, okay, so if we're less than three times earnings, is that really a great economic decision to sell? There's a lot of other factors that drive a business owner to sell. And I think one of the one of the challenges business owners have is the, you know, the why, right? And why am I going to do that? And unrealistic expectations. And I don't know if some of the brokers in the room can speak to that, but you know, a lot of times franchisees have very, very unrealistic expectations about what that business is worth. You know, hey, I, it, it cost me $400,000 to build the restaurant. I should be able to get that $400,000. I still owe the SBA $300,000, um, so I should sell it to $300,000. And that's really always a challenge. How do you guys as franchisors, I don't know if that one's working, uh, deal with those unrealistic expectations? I think the first part is having the honest conversation and making sure that they understand if their business is not making money, 2.83 of nothing is nothing. So it's a very easy conversation, right? You have two choices. You can get out for whatever you can get for your lease if it's a desirable location. You can sell your equipment for 40 cents in the dollar. Or you can get back in your store, fix the problems, grow the sales, and then try to sell it or find somebody to run it for you. And after that conversation, it's kind of a waste after that until they make their decision. From our standpoint, there's there's not a lot of discussion about it. If, if you're not making money, there's really no there's nothing to sell. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, we certainly look at that too. I mean, a franchisee has to be ready to sell their business for less than they put into it, which I think is a really hard discussion to have for someone who's, um, you know, possibly put their home on the line or leveraged their 401k to open this business to now turn around and say, I'm going to sell it and still have these obligations to the SBA or to an angel investor, whoever it was. It's a difficult conversation. Um, I think the problem is that the longer, once they've decided they don't want to do this anymore, the longer it stays with them without selling, the more damage it does to the business. And so I think it's incumbent upon us as franchisors to really keep a close eye on that. Um, and then have sometimes what are difficult conversations that say, look, this isn't going to end well. You have six months to get out, and we're going to help you in whatever way we can. Otherwise, this is going to be a conversation where you get nothing for your investment, and nobody wants to see that happen. And maybe even worse, because if you have a lease obligation, if it's a retail, mm -hmm. and you end up closing, you, you still have that obligation. So, Yeah, please. And just one thing to add. I think that being just being a franchise is a multiplier for that. That, right. that would add to your resale multiple because you have the strength of the support system behind you, which makes it much more likely you're going to succeed. Mm -hmm. uh, and also point out that to me, especially like my salon suite, the barrier to entry is the cost to build the place. You put a ton of money in that you, if you sold it the next year, you'd never get it back out. The value is that cash flow stream for the next 20 years is where the value is. And it's hard to translate that value into a an equitable sales price. You have to stay there to benefit from that. Mm -hmm. Questions? Anybody want any uh, questions? I'll keep
keep going here. Um, what do you think surprises buyers or, or sellers, uh, take either one, uh, about the sales process, specifically the, in franchising? Um, so I think that what surprises them is the amount of due diligence that's necessary on the part of both the buyer and the seller, um, that there's a ton of information. And, and so some of the advice that we give is kind of know what the franchisor requirements are. Um, you know, do we, so Salbergs, as an example, we have a right of first refusal on any store that's sold. Know that going in. Um, right now, kind of in our current life cycle, you're required to do a full remodel. Know that going in, because it'd be a shame to do a ton of work, talk to a broker, get prospects in there, and get all the way down the line with someone, and then have them say, well, I didn't know those things were coming. Um, and so I think they're surprised by the fact that somebody isn't just going to walk in and say, oh, well, this is a nice-looking store, and you have customers in the line, and so I'm going to give you what you're asking for your business. There's just a ton of due diligence involved in it. Um, and so be educated is probably the best advice I give them. How about you? I think the biggest part that we're finding is people just don't read the FDD. <laughs> I know it's not fun, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Come on. You have to know what's in it, and you have to know what you can do and what you can't do. If you're selling a, a private business, it's easy. You just negotiate and you're done. The franchise process is cumbersome. If you don't have the patience and the time and the, and the energy to do it, then it's probably not the right fit for you. You're, you're buying a system. You're not reinventing as a true entrepreneur, as they say. You're, you're buying a system, and the system has to fit with what your expectations and what you want to do in life. And I think you have to take the time to evaluate the business, read the FDD, and make sure that the process is something that you want to go through. Because you do have to remodel. You do have to upgrade. You do have to have a grand opening. You have to spend marketing money. You have to. Just because it's a single location that's already been there doesn't mean you don't have to reinvent and grow the business again. And I know that's a hard sell for people who are probably putting in all they have. And they're like, i got to spend 10 more on marketing? Yeah, you do. So do you think buyers of franchise businesses sometimes lose sight of the fact that they're to some degree buying into the franchise more than they're even buying that existing location, than that business. And um, so that brings, who, what do you think is the best practice in terms of, I know larger, more mature franchises will have someone dedicated to the resale process, right? I know Vicki here from Redis who does that, and who did, they do that, and right? But um, as opposed, do you think that's better handled in operations or in sales? How would you, you know, franchise sales? To me, I think sales and operations and marketing are always not always agreeing. Right. So I think having, I know no, it's hard to imagine. So having somebody in the middle of that to make sure the process is going through. I know in our current concept, the Simple Greek, we haven't had any transfers yet, but we are moving forward with corporate stores and we are taking over a couple of locations. But in my previous job, there was a lot of transfers. We had a full team dedicated to that. But it had to go through approval of operations. It had to go, you know, the sales guy brings it to you. The person is responsible for managing the deal, but the deal has to be approved by operations. And I think that's a, that's a hard sell for, for sales and it's a hard sell for marketing. I think working together versus being in the silos, which, which tends to happen, it's just inevitable. You're not always going to agree between marketing ops and, and salespeople. So for the startup franchisors with a, you know, just a handful, we have a lot of startup franchisors, kind of a best practice is to treat it as, you know, don't lose sight of the fact that it's still a new franchisee coming in. And it's, treated, and it's treated as such. It's almost a franchisee. Even though you call it a transfer, it's a new franchisee. It's the same process going forward. So we treat it the same as we would otherwise. The only difference is probably the fees you're going to pay in terms of the transfer fee. Um, yeah, I was just going to say it's 
you know, it's hard. We struggle with it too, that kind of sales versus operations. I mean, most of the time we're helping the existing franchisees sell their business. And so um, we're doing a good bit of that now, actually. Um, we're at kind of a point in our life cycle where we have a, a few franchisees looking to extricate themselves from this. And so it's easier from an operations and a growth side for us to partner up existing franchisees who we know want to grow with existing franchisees who we know want to get out. Um, it's, a, it's an easier process. It takes less time. There's no training involved. Everybody understands what they're getting into. Um, and so in that respect, our sales department doesn't really get involved. Um, we'll handle a lot of those deals ourselves because it's faster. Um, really, the franchise sales team gets involved if there's a business broker and they're bringing someone from outside the system in. And do you guys recommend business brokers specifically? Um, you know, do you have like kind of a group where people come and they'll sell? Yeah, we do. We, we do for sure. We have a list of ones that we say um, they should put it out to. We try and get them to carve out existing franchisees from the exclusive. Um, but we recommend if we've kind of gone through our host of franchisees who we know want to grow and nobody's really piquing an interest that um, in the spirit of time they get a business broker. Yeah. I was going to say, we kind of evaluate, one, do we want it as a corporate store, as a location we want to keep, right? So the first thing is we have first right. Do we want to take it? If we don't want to take it, as Jenna said, I think the best solution is to finding somebody in the current system, right? How much easier is it to get a loan? You've already got four and you're successful. Yeah. It's a lot easier and a quicker process. So I think the last choice is going outside and trying to find somebody new. But it, it, ha it happens, but that's the last choice. Jim, can you speak to the financing process of, <laughs> of that, of resales versus new? The, the resale side. Again, going back to an earlier question, what are people's expectations? It, it always takes longer than you think and is a little more complicated than you think. <laughs> and I think the bankers here would uh, agree that that's true for the financing part as well. Allow yourself more time. It may seem like a slam dunk to you, but it's not necessarily to the banker. Uh, the SPA's portion really is just providing the guarantee for the loan if, if you're eligible and if it's necessary. You may or, not need, may, or may not need the SBA guarantee to, to fulfill your financing. But uh, start early, provide all the documentations. Usually the delays are on not the banker's part, but the, the person's part providing the required documentation. Uh, and so start early, provide everything they ask for as quickly as you can, and uh, have a good relationship with your banker to make sure that it's a good fit that the loan, some loans, some banks just aren't comfortable with. And they're reluctant to tell you that, but you just have to ask, hey, is this a deal that you're just really not comfortable with? Should I go somewhere else? And you're not gonna hurt my feelings if you tell me that. Because a quick no is better than a drug out six month no, right? So uh, be honest with your your process there. And I think to touch on that in a separate separate category of the time commitment. Even if you don't want to run your business, in most franchises you have to go to training. It could be four weeks. It could be six weeks. It could be eight weeks. Can you get out of your business or your current family situation? Can you go to training for that long? Because it's, it's going to require that. I mean, I don't know most people require 10%, 25%, or somebody has to have a vested interest in the business. You have to realize that you're going to have to go to training, and that's going to be a lot of time. And it's going to cost money, and you're going to be away from your family and away from your job. And if you're not willing to do that, that probably should be the first point of you probably shouldn't have this business. If you can't spend the time in training, you probably can't spend the time running the business. 
But I would think that's an advantage of a franchise resale from the owner's standpoint, is that in a traditional resale and a traditional independent brokerage environment, the owner itself is going to be the one who has to train. So I think that can be kind of a selling point to that. So if you're you know, shifting gears, there's you know, a handful of franchisees in the room, and if you're a franchisee thinking of positioning yourself to sell, obviously yes, and I give the same advice. The day you buy the business is the day you should think about how you're going to get out and how you're going to sell it. Let's say you didn't do that. Yeah, it happens. Um, what do you think a franchisee can do? Um, first of all, I guess one question is, what's a good best practice for a franchisee positioning themselves to sell? And second of all, sometimes, and I think it's a mistake, but I'd like to hear from the panel, they are resistant to tell the franchisor that they're for sale. And maybe you guys can speak to, to those points. I would say first, if you tell a franchisor, to me, it doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing unless you're operating your store incorrectly. It can only help you if you have a good relationship with your franchisor. Well, I bet if you're operating the store incorrectly, it's a good thing for the franchisor. <laughs> They're pretty happy. Yeah, um, I thought I was trying to thought of what else I was going to say when you when you just said that. Without telling the franchisor. Yeah. Yeah, without telling the franchisor, and I also think um, don't tell your team. I think there's a point at which you should tell your team, but don't tell your team. It's your business. You know, how you want to handle that exit is up to you, but I don't think you should tell your team. I also think you should get your finances in order. If your store is making money, great. Do you have seven cars, two boats, four, four cell phones? I mean, if you got education on it. I mean, I think that's important because while I know what you're trying to do on one side, it's not going to work on the other side. So you have to figure out what you really want out of your business and what you're willing to show versus what you're actually going to get back. And I think you need to start well in advance of identifying what you want to do to what your valuation is going to be. Yeah, we actually talked about this a little bit yesterday. I mean, you spend most of the time trying to make your books like you're not making as much money. And now comes the time where you've got to make it look like you are making as much money as you are. Um, and start that process early. I mean, as soon as you think about, I may want to sell my business, get your books in order. It's the first thing someone's going to ask. Um, they want all the pertinent information that they think they need in order to make a decision. And so have it ready so that it doesn't elongate the process. Or it just makes it look kind of unorganized, which can make for a bad negotiating strategy. Um, and so I would agree, get, get everything you have in line. And you were, yeah, you that Just the, the last thing, a continuation of informing your uh, employees. Uh, as you said, I think it's important to inform them, but not too early. And uh, be careful how you treat the fact that you've decided to sell your franchise. I've seen cases, uh, one recently, where the, the negotiations in the process was drug out longer than expected. The uh, seller had informed all of his people for multiple locations of a franchise, and uh, he lost a lot of employees. The quality of the work went down, the, uh, and eventually the valuation, the value of his properties declined over that more than a year process to where he got less money than he should have because his earnings dropped off because of all these other poor morale, poor employment, being able to hire new employees, that sort of thing. So you have to manage that process very carefully. I completely agree. I mean, I think one of the most important things to remember is don't stop trying to build your business just because you don't want to run it anymore. Because the more your sales grow, the cleaner your store is. You know, I'm talking about restaurants. but. 
the better the value is. We actually sat with a group of franchisees earlier uh, last week, and they said that right now what they're willing to pay and what stores in our system are going for are two times cash if the store is below our average unit volume and three times if it's above. And so that's a huge difference for someone when you're valuing their bu your business. And so I think it's really important to still, as much as you can, keep your head in the game um, until it's time to really get out. It'll only improve your position. Yeah, I, the confidentiality is a really interesting thing because one of the challenges when you talk about franchise salespeople and everybody wants to sort of shout or selling it within the system and going out to other franchisees. And I also think that is a really good reason for having an independent business broker because they have a process in place to have confidentiality, to get a confidentiality agreement signed. And, um, and I think that's gonna, that, that makes a difference. I mean, you know, as a lawyer, yeah, I don't really think you should tell your team members until the day the transaction closes. Uh, just because they're, they don't, they're not gonna get it, you know, or they're, they might get nervous about it. Although I was at a uh, business broker meeting where they took an opposite stance. And some people were saying, um, which I don't know if I necessarily agreed with, but I thought it was really interesting that they were saying that, look, businesses sell all the time, and as long as you can sit down and you can talk to the team, and especially if it's something in a franchise concept, you know, versus sort of the owner who founded it, um, there's some merit. And he was talking about higher multiples because he went out there and you might find someone you wouldn't otherwise find. Um, so there is kind of a movement, and perhaps it has to do with a cultural shift of a little bit more transparency. But I'm a little more old school, but I thought I'd throw it out there. Any, go ahead. Howard? What do you recommend negotiating with the brokers to exclude in the agreement or add in the agreement? And what is the average commission that you're seeing nowadays? Um, we, I always recommend trying to exclude existing franchisees um, just because, candidly, the broker isn't going to do much work. Um, and the v real value of a broker, at least from our perspective and what we've seen, is that they have a Rolodex of people they know are interested in buying businesses, and so they bring that to the table and the process, certainly. But I try and say exclude existing franchisees or anyone that the franchisor brings. So I'm going to sound like I'm sandbagging for brokers here, which I'm not, but I also think that um, business brokers add more value than just bringing the person to the table. Mm -hmm. So I've seen where they might say, look, if it's an existing franchisee or if it's your brother-in-law, we'll pay half a commission. Oh, because yeah. the intermediary has to be an intermediary and has to make that marriage work and can be objective. Make so, the deal happen. Exactly. Sure. Um, and I don't, probably the brokers in the room can answer better about what they're seeing for commission. I've seen anywhere from, I think, 10 to 15% was what I've seen recently. Are there any and brokers in the room? Ten is standard. some of these sales? Well, yeah, everyone has their own minimum. But what do you think? I mean, 10? A young business broker, they should be down minimum. Okay. Deservedly so. <laughs> yeah, Gary. 
I'm a business broker and I do some mergers and acquisitions. Bernie's right, 10% is the standard fee uh, for professional business brokers. The unfortunate thing is there's no licensing in Pennsylvania, Delaware, or New Jersey for business brokers. Anyone in the room, regardless of your profession, can become and hang the shingle tomorrow that you're a business broker. There's one thing you didn't talk about, which is the most important thing with the business besides making money. How about the lease? Right. I agree. I want to first make a comment to the business broker's license. I think one mistake that I have seen, because we do a lot of transactions, obviously, from business brokers, is sometimes franchisors will try, and this is no disrespect to real estate brokers, it's a completely different business. Real estate brokers take a different approach, and they're not business brokers. So I think for franchisors in the room, you know, be, be wary of that. And then we'll talk about the lease. Yeah, one thing real quick before that is just because you've you want to use a broker doesn't mean you don't have to try to find the right broker. Exactly. And when you find the right broker, your broker is not going to necessarily do it for you. It's your business. It's like being a franchisee. It's your business. It's not their business. They're, help, they're there to help you and guide you and ask you questions and challenge you, but they're not there to do it for you. So if you're buying an existing franchise, which is some advantages to that, is you have a book of business, the FTD. Every store is in it. You can call them. You can find out sales. You can figure out if the store is underperforming, overperforming. Why is it underperforming? Do your due diligence. Figure out if the person's undervaluing their business and what you can do quickly to turn the business around. I think the people seem to think, well, I'm going to hire people, and they're going to look out for my best interest. No one looks out for your best interest but you. I agree. Um, it's a great question about the lease, and then I'll come back here, but I, I, would you guys like to speak about how important, especially in a retail on the restaurant side, well, I guess in everything, um, how important the lease is? I mean, the landlord's your partner there, right? Uh, typically, from the funding, the lending side, the term of the loan can't exceed the term of the lease. Now, you may can't, there can be exceptions to that if there are advantages. If you have, if you're, especially if you're buying multiple properties, some of the leases are 10 years, one of them's two years. And you want the two-year lease to expire. You want to get out of that property and move on. You can probably justify that to, a, to the banker and explain why that's the case uh, and that then you'll have a longer-term lease. And especially if you can show the numbers that support the fact that you have a, you're, not, you're intentionally not going to extend the lease out to the term of the loan. Uh, that's from the financing side. Yeah, I mean, the, the retail lease, typically 10-year leases, is candidly the larger of the two obligations that you have to deal with when you consider selling your business. I mean, obviously, everybody has a franchise agreement, and it has really scary things on it, like accelerated royalties if you don't stay open the whole 10 years and all of those things. But it's to the benefit of both the franchisor and the inbound and exiting franchisee to keep that store open and operating. And so your franchisor is probably going to be lenient about some of those things in there, and they just want to shake hands and part ways. Your landlord, not so much sometimes. Um, they don't really care who's in there. They want their rent every month, and they want it on time. And... Um, you don't have a lot of leverage. And so I think it's really important to strategize with your um, business broker, with your franchisor about how you approach the landlord because even if they let you off, you may still stay on as a guarantor on that lease. And so those are long-term obligations. Well, I was going to make that comment that, you know, that's in addition to reading the franchise agreement when you're thinking of selling, you really have to go back through your lease. And if sometimes, you know, people signed so many years ago and maybe they didn't have an attorney look at it, 
um, and they just signed it and they don't realize that they're still on the hook and they're still going to be responsible even if they sell that store. And then some leases are written in such a way that it's going to, if that new buyer keeps renewing, their personal guarantee can stick with that. So that's something that if they have some of those issues, they're better off to go to the landlord and start negotiating that now to say, hey, I want to sell my business. And I've even seen, you don't see it too much anymore, but I've even seen where in the lease, the landlord will, which I think is outrageous and should always not be in a lease, the landlord will take a percentage of the sale. And that is really rough because they're saying, hey, you're in my center, you know, your business is worth a half a million dollars, I'm gonna take 20%. So that's not a clause, I mean, that clause is there and it's enforceable, so you gotta really look at your lease. I think the lease is a very important, but also think um, a lot of landlords, and no offense to landlords, I think they're doing a lot of personal guarantees now. So even if you do sell a business, in some ways you're, you're still liable and they're also looking at your personal and your other things in life. So I think if you can do a diminishing personal guarantee, if you sign a 10-year lease, it diminishes by so many so much amount a month or per year so that you're not on the hook. Because things do happen in life. 10 years is a long time. And if you can figure out a way that you can give a year's notice and only pay a year up front or give a diminishing return from the year the day you open to the day you close, it, the personal guarantee goes down. That all they can say is no. And it depends on how much, how many more people want that location to where how flexible they're going to be. And unlike an independent business, if you're personally guaranteed on the lease and you're still responsible for the lease payments after you sell the business, you're now, you will have signed, you sell your franchise business, you sign a mutual termination with the franchisor, you no longer have the right to run the Simple Greek or the Salad Works. So you can't even take the store back if the guy you sold it to isn't paying the rent. So you have a real problem. So those are the kind of issues that are sort of unique to franchising and that. So all, all good points. I had a question right here, then I'll come back. Do you recommend that uh, franchisees get an independent business appraisal prior to even starting the process of putting the business up for sale? To kind of set their expectations of methodologies that are out there I don't think it's a bad idea. I think most business brokers will be able to do that. You know, maybe there's an, you know, so yes, I, I don't think it's a bad idea. What do you guys think on that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that knowing what other stores in that organization are selling for, which um, both the broker and the franchisor can help you with, is important because obviously you're not going to price yourself too low or too high for the, for the market for your specific organization. Ditto. Yeah. It's a thousand dollars well spent, or whatever the cost is. I just saw a lot of people cringe when you said that. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Also, a biz by sell is a whole I think the larger the business, the more complex and the more cash flow the more the valuation becomes an important piece because you can be leaving money on the table. If the business is just sort of cash flowing a little bit, it's probably, you're probably gonna get a better rule of thumb from the broker and from the franchisor or, or, or a biz by sell. So it has to do with the complexity of it. That actually was my question. However, what is a typical um, formal valuation cost? Any thoughts on valuation prices, Gary? Normally, uh, I do valuations, but I won't give you a written valuation. I have about a half a dozen companies that do that. They can run, depending upon the size of the business, anywhere from a minimum of $2,500 up to $10,000. Bernie? 
could be done for less. I'm not trying to do a reverse auction here. I just. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that's good. So that could be done a lot. Oh. The, the, the other part I just want to make. No. Someone mentioned getting information out of the FDD, talking to this franchise. Another very important piece of information in the FDD, if the franchise does have one, is the item 19. Okay? If, if there's a pretty extensive item 19, a buyer and even the seller could see how their business is shaping up in comparison to other businesses in that system. So for example, if it's a food business and the one you're selling is running a 40% food cost and the average in that system is 32% food cost, you know, that tells you that there's room for improvement in that operation. Bernie, that's a great point. We were actually just talking about that yesterday. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, we've talked a lot about what you do when you sell your business, but it's just as important from a, you know, if you want to buy a business, what things you should look at. And people sometimes get um, really bogged down in what that store is doing from a variable cost control perspective. And again, for restaurant people, so I'm talking about restaurants, you know, what their labor cost and their food cost is. Um, but it's not as important to worry about how that person's operating it, because guess what? If they were operating it to the best of their ability and to the system average, they probably wouldn't be selling it. So really what you want to look at is the delta between the item 19. So what is the average food cost for the entire system? And what is this store doing? Because that's really your upside potential. So don't get bogged down in how it's being operated right now. Look at it as what is the potential that I can make out of this store if I grow both top line revenue and then um, can cut costs on the bottom line. And that can be good advice to the seller who's positioning it as well to say, look, I have my day job. I was going to quit. I didn't quit. My food costs are 40%. But look at what the system can do. I don't have the energy to put it in, so you're getting a deal here. So I think that's a great comment. Will any of the franchisors go down on the lease, guaranteed the lease for a franchisee? Not if I can help it. <laughs> um, I mean, we get asked all the time, right? I mean, typically, sometimes we're the people that help talk to the landlord with the exiting franchisee, and they say all the time, well, are you willing to sign on as a guarantor? Um, no, not if I can help it. I mean, we candidly, we'd like franchisees that have the net worth that they need both to sign a 10-year retail lease and to run the business. We've done it um, because we didn't want to lose a site, but it's not typically our practice. I don't know about you guys. I wouldn't say it's something we want to do either. Um, sometimes in the past we have, if we know we have the right location, if we have a certain airport or a certain travel plaza, we want to keep and we know we want to keep and we know the sales, we'll make sure that it's run if anything happens. So it depends upon what you want out of it and the success of that location, but normally I would never do that. Yeah, I... I um I would agree. I mean, I think that you should only sign that a franchisor, and that's, I think, to the newer franchisors, 
of a landlord saying, oh, do this deal because you're going to sign it. Look, if you're in the franchising business, you're not capturing the profit. you got to limit that risk compared to what the revenue you're going to generate out of that. So I, I would agree. I think the best practice is not to sign as a franchisor. Different business. Although I have seen uh, in, a, in another business, it's a, a, a daycare type business where it's a big build-out, I guess similar to like a you know, million dollar plus, is the franchisor created a guarantor company that they would guarantor up to a certain, and they charge for it. So if the, if the landlord is saying, I need to do this and I need to do X dollars, they say, fine, we'll do that, but we're going to add to your rent and we're going to charge you almost like an insurance to be the franchisor guarantor, and they put that money aside. Um, and it allows some of these harder deals to get done, and then if someone ever fails, they'll use that money to go operate it. So I have seen that. Other questions? Getting back to the evaluation part of it, you get a multi-million dollar location for finance, a letter of opinion versus a real evaluation, how much swing is that really important because of financing I would imagine that would be more important any of the bankers finance guys want to comment on that sure so it's, it's a great idea to get your initial valuation from the business broker you're working with but then the banks are all going to require valuation on their own uh, for 2500 bucks so you're eventually going to get the real valuation and that's what we're going to base our you know your purchase price and everything so we'll require so I guess it's get the, uh, get the opinion early so that you know whether or not you can live with that and whether it's time to sell, um, but then be prepared that it's not going to be sufficient to finance it. Good question. Yeah? Let me repeat it so for people in the back. The question was, as a franchisor, do you collect pro formas and business plans from the buyers coming in? Absolutely. Um, it's part of the approval process. It's what they have to show us. Now, um, what we won't say is you could make this instead of this, obviously, because it's still a franchise prospect that's coming in, so we still have to you know, follow all those laws. But they have to have a well-thought-out business plan that includes... Um, you know, a break even and a pro forma for what they think to do. And even more important, I think, than the pro forma, because it's usually all about everybody thinks, oh, well, the sales are this and I can double them. Um, I think it's about having realistic <coughs> expectations that there's a lot of hard work and a lot of marketing dollars um, improving a business that may be suffering right now. And so we will give advice on kind of the trajectory of sales increase as opposed to, you know, bottom line stuff. But yes, we require it. She said it perfectly, so I hope that helps. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have an opinion. I don't think it's necessary. I mean, I think a business broker should do that for their own business because they're potentially leaving money on the table. But I think the majority of businesses in the franchise space are retail and therefore you're not really, you're just selling the assets. So that would be, that would be my opinion. I don't know if any of the business brokers have an opinion on that. Uh, the question was, is it advisable for business brokers to have a real estate license? Uh, yes. However, I've been doing this 36 years. I have eight commercial real estate companies I work with. I don't have a license. I'm not going back to school. 
The answer is, yes, they should, but Gary doesn't. <laughs> Bernie? So, um, he has the relationships, but you should. I only use it when I'm selling a business with a philosophy. So it's incidental, because it's typically going to be incidental, and you don't want to leave that on the table. So I don't know if, it, if you're vetting, if, you don't ha if you're a franchisee looking to sell your business and you're vetting a business broker and you don't have the real estate as part of your deal, I'm not sure that it necessarily matters. I don't know if you guys have a thought on that. It's very advisable. If you know one, Tom, let me know. <laughs> so any other questions here? We're getting towards 2 o'clock, so I want, to, uh, I want to wrap up. And by the way, we have this room for another you know, half an hour or whatever we need to continue to, uh, continue to network. So if there's someone you, yes, Gary. Uh, I've been doing this a long time, and I recommend to both buyer and seller be represented by an attorney for their own benefit, so nothing happens five years down the line, something was done wrong. Don't worry, Tom, I'm going to repeat that one. What, <laughs> what Gary said was he's been doing this a long time, and he always recommends that both the buyer and the seller both have their own attorney so that five years from now it doesn't blow up and although that is uh, very self-serving, I do agree with that, even if it's not. We, re we recommend that as well, because um, it's just, it's, it's cleaner for everybody that way. Uh, well, now he's not on our list, because he's our attorney, so we can't help our franchisees, but he used to be, yes, on our list. Good. So, um, last question here, and uh, I always do this as sort of the conclusion of, um, of do we have one more? Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask, are there any, I'm just curious, are there any strategies or techniques that work better than others to transfer a business uh, to a family member, you know, let's say, whether it's, you know, using gifting, is it installment notes, private you know, those kinds of things? So, guys, from the... Uh, transferring to a family member, I guess, just to get the fran franchisor's perspective, how do you guys view that? Um, you know, we, we think that's great. Um, I, I love succession planning for my franchisees, especially if it can go to their child or a family member. Typically, we hope that, that those kind of conversations happen long before it comes time to sell the business because we're going to have the same questions about your son or daughter or brother-in-law that we would have about any inbound franchisee. Are they qualified? Do they have the appropriate net worth? Um, all of those things. So we like it certainly because they have a keen understanding of that business and what goes into it because they know someone. Um, I'll let you, Jim, talk a little bit about the financial side of things from the SBA. But. I think from the finance standpoint, probably easier to sell it to them in some with some compensation. Uh, and I guess the inheritance part is more of an attorney question. I can't really answer that part. Well, I just think it goes to the point of your tax advisors, your accountants, your attorneys. You should talk to them very early about that because it can be fairly complex. And, and I would say it's you know, very, very unique to do that. Yeah, we mentioned very briefly the idea of planning. Yes. And when you mentioned the scenario of selling to a child, mm -hmm. some family member, uh, if you plan ahead, and you slide over some time that that sibling or child winds up with at least, let's say, 10% ownership at the time that they're looking to acquire full ownership. Most SBA lenders 
will then treat that as their equity into the transaction and finance the entire transaction, including all the work that happens and what they do. So a little bit of planning can really go a long way in, in having a successful exit strategy. I agree. Just make sure the FDD allows for that. Well, right, FDDs, and you should talk to the franchisee family. Some are first-generation right. families. Some, they don't do it at all. So make sure it's part of your due diligence and part of what your long-term strategy and your expectations are is that that's something that you can do fairly cheap because if you can't, you're going to be frustrated and upset about it when you knew ahead of time. I, I would agree. So, uh, so I'll ask the last question here of the panel. If there's, um, if there's one thing based on this topic that... Um, that you want people to leave here with, what uh, what would it be, Jim? Uh, start early and don't let your business deteriorate as you're going through the sales process. If you're the seller and if you're the buyer, be aware of that potential and monitor the success, any degradation or improvement in the business as you're going through the process. It can change significantly. Um, do your homework both on the buyer and the seller side. Um, know what the business is about, read the franchise agreement, know what you can value your business at, know what the variable and fixed costs are. Um, get as much information as, that you, as you can so that you can both either sell your business at maximum value or buy a business um, at the appropriate value. I think it's within yourself, as I talked about, starting off the, the, the conversation and setting expectations for why you're buying it and then why you're selling it, and do your diligence, due diligence in the middle. It's very important. Great. Well, I want to thank you guys. Give these guys a round of hands. Great, great panel, and thank you for the audience participation. And like I said, we'll, uh, we'll be around if you want to continue to network. Thanks a lot.